And uh, what a treat today, uh, what a special thing today to have uh, the guests that we have in our house for Father's Day. And uh, I could not be more excited. I can remember all the way back to uh, my seminary years. Uh, we're talking 30 years ago now. Um, and listening to this guy in my car on cassette tape. How many of you know who's here today and have listened to him at some point on a cassette tape? Not a DVD, not a CD, but on a cassette tape. And um, just having, you know, my heart and mind blown at the same time, and that's what I love um, about the way that God uses him in the world. He's an author of 20 books. He is uh, one of the smartest people alive. He might be the smartest person alive, but I felt like that was a little bold today and might be off-putting to him, so I'm just going to go with one of. But one of the great thinkers of our days, born in India, um, at some point moved to Canada. Uh, he's going to tell a little bit of his story of uh, how he came to know Jesus today. But he and his wife, Margie, have three kids. We'll hear a little bit about that today as well. But I want you to welcome uh, to Passion City Church today one of the legends of faith in our time um, and one of my heroes. This is Ravi Zacharias going to come. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Robbie, we are so excited. I, there's been few times where we've uh, had someone here where there's been a buzz, like when, when you were coming here. People love you, and uh, people have been impacted by you in such an amazing way. So, thank you for coming thank and you. sharing some of your Father's Day uh, thank you. with us today. We're grateful. Well, after that introduction, I'm afraid to say anything, lest, <laughs> you, get, lest you get a second opinion after that. No, I'll do my best. Thank you for being here. You know, Ravi and I have been talking about this for a little while, and uh, we're talking about some of the questions that, that we want to kind of cover today to give him a chance to touch on a lot of different subjects. And I was asking him, you know, just kind of figuring out how many of these we might get to today, because I know if it was me answering the questions, it would be one. And... Um, <laughs> And he said, well, if you feel like I've answered, you know, what you want, then you can just, you know, cut me off and steer me a different direction. And I said, I promise you the one thing I will never do in life is cut Robbie Zacharias off. So <laughs> Robbie's going to answer as long as he wants today, and that's amazing. You and Margie have three kids. You have a boy and two girls. And um, just before we jump into uh, big Christian ideas in the, in the world that we live in, um, Tell us about fathering. You know, there's a lot of dads in the room right now, and obviously you wanted to pass Jesus on to your kids. But what were some of the other priorities for you, things that you wanted to shape into your children's life along the journey? And maybe how did you do that? And yeah, it's a good question, Louis, and um, thank you for having me here on Father's Day. In fact, we were trying to work out a Sunday when I could be here, and uh, I don't know, when I looked at my calendar and saw this one free and accepted it, I don't think Louis or I realized it was Father's Day. And but I didn't then, care. I said, yeah, we'll take it. That's why I was, <laughs> that's why I was yeah, in well. town. And uh, normally, I'm, really, I don't know if this is the first Sunday I'm in town this year or what, but it's very rare. And I promise you, I am married. My wife is not here. She's just, we just got back from Moscow. I was in Russia for a week of meetings, and it just takes a huge toll. And then she went on to Austria and England from there to my daughter works with um, uh, rescuing women and children from their sex trafficking industry. So my wife was just there 
keeping watch over her kids while she was doing that in those lands. Uh, so she would have been here, my apologies. She was still willing to come. I said, just get some sleep and get some rest. We'll have a Father's Day lunch later. I think, uh, boy, it's a good question, Louis. You know, um, obviously that they would uh, love Jesus Christ is the greatest desire from the day your wife uh, conceives. Uh, we've been married 44 years as of this year. We were married Amazing. in 1972. Yes, and uh, yeah, two landmarks this year. I turned 70 as well. I always thought that was, uh, you know, way up there. The, uh, Alexander the Great was my classmate. We went together to, <laughs> for studies. Uh, but in terms of my kids, uh, the most important thing that they follow Jesus, but I was, I would say the second most important thing would be that they would always love and respect their parents. And that cannot be commanded. That has to be earned. Uh, that's over a period of time where they watch your life and see if you're for real. As you well know, children growing up in the ministry can become very cynical because they see the underside of all of, the, all of these things. And the fact that they'll not only love the Lord but have a close uh, relationship. In fact, just before I came here, my son texted me. All of them live in Toronto and in Atlanta here. We lived in Toronto for 10 years. My wife's Canadian. But uh, just to have them nearby and have their love and respect and admiration I mean, what more can you really want? Uh, the opposite of that would be unthinkable and really quite pathetic. So I would say those would be the uh, characteristics, but always to respect every human being, no matter who they are or what station in life they are. Mm -hmm. In the ministry especially, it can get so wrong-headed. You're always, you have the tendency to lean towards those who can do something for you. Mm -hmm. But I've taught my kids and my colleagues, give priority to those who can do nothing for you because you are then loving them for who they are, not what they can do. So I've just uh, tried to raise my children to be respectful of men and women and people as fellow human beings. And I think just watching them that way, my oldest daughter, Sarah, is now our executive director. I think she's in the audience this morning. She was working for Pepperdine, their development department, and driving in her car one day. Just felt the Lord's voice speaking to her because one of my colleagues asked her if she would come and help me direct this work, and I, know, I said, you're wasting your time. Uh, but she loved her job there, and the Lord spoke to her. She's with us now, Naomi, working with the women and children at risk, uh, rescuing kids from the prostitution work and AIDS and so on. And Nathan is in our radio department. Just wonderful to have them nearby, you know. And uh, any people say, yes, so you've got all three of your children in the ministry? I say, yes. They say, how come? I say, because I don't have four. Uh, <laughs> I'm just happy to have all three of them working closely, close by. With, and four grandchildren. So, mm, yeah. Amazing. Uh, amazing. Uh, it's a great testimony. Uh, it's a great testimony to any person uh, when their kids want to join them in the work that they're doing and want to serve God. It says a lot about you. Robbie, tell us, you know, a lot of people know the present tense Ravi Zacharias, but tell us about the Ravi Zacharias in his uh, late teens and early 20s, and tell us a little bit about how you took that journey to faith in Christ. It was an amazing journey, Louis, and you know, as an apologist, we are mainly dealing with 
the intellectual side, yeah. Um, you used a word there, so I did interrupt you, I'm right, sorry, but right. you said as an apologist, and you're always introduced as an apologist. Can you tell us, for people who hear that word and don't know what that is, what is an apologist? Yeah, it's, you know, years ago, people, of course, had no idea, even in the church, what it was, unless you were in a theological institution studying it as a discipline, Christian apologetics. Most people had no idea, generally, the caricature is made that you're going around the world apologizing for something, <laughs> but that's really not what it is. There are two texts that are key to this and many other texts in the life of the Apostle Paul. The word apologetics is a transliteration from the Greek, uh, 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, where Peter's, now he's a fisherman talking, right? And here's what he says, in your heart set apart Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks of you the reason for the hope that is in you and do that with gentleness and respect. The entire task of Christian apologetics is summed up in those two verses. The first thing is to set apart in your heart Christ as Lord. You cannot truly be an apologist unless you yourself are under the Lordship of Christ. So you're ever humble and submitted to him. Then always be prepared to give an answer. That's the word, apologia from which we get apologetics. It literally means to give an answer, but then he goes on to say, to give the reason, that comes from the word logos, logic, word, and uh, of to anyone that asks of you, but to do it with gentleness and respect. My mother used to say, once you've cut off a person's nose, there's no point giving them a rose to smell. You cannot offend the questioner. Behind every question is a questioner. And so Peter reminds us under the Lordship of Christ with gentleness and respect to answer the question, to give the reason for the existential reality. So it's bridging the head to the heart for the hope that is within you. Then in Acts 2, the same Peter on the day of Pentecost when people are thoroughly perplexed, he stands up and says, let me explain this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So Christian apologetics has two tasks to make Christian claims clear. You don't muddy the waters. You don't confuse the gospel. Mm. But not only do you make it clear, you answer the questions people are asking. That is the task of Christian apologetics. Amazing. And you were saying earlier, before I interrupted you, that you travel as an apologist, and then you were going to tell some of your story of coming to faith yeah. I think it's, it's amazing, and so that's what I was leading into, Louis. The fact that even though you can get driven into the intellectual side of it, which is actually quite boring, you don't want to hang out out there too long. Uh, some, of the, some of the most uh, unimpressive moments is when you're just in this region here, and you don't know how it applies to life itself. But to me, the most persuasive thing of everything in my Christian walk is what Christ did for me when I wasn't even looking for him. Mm. I was so perplexed and so confused growing up as a young lad in India and not doing very well at anything except sports. I wanted to be in a cricketer, I wanted to play tennis. My goal was really to be in professional sports of some kind. So I was neglecting my studies, miserably failing at it. My dad was 
quite an angry man. He was a vicious, vicious-tempered man. And uh, one day he looked me in the eye and said to me, you know, uh, you're going to be an embarrassment to this family. You're going to bring shame to this family. And the way I was headed, he was right. But I was being raised in a culture where shame and fear really direct you to do things. And he was appealing to shame. And uh, it didn't work that well with me. I said, he's right. I'm not going to make anything of it. Tried to take my own life at the age of 17 and ended up in a hospital bed. And uh, the doctors were not giving me much hope. I tried to poison my system. And as I lay in bed with my body dehydrated, I'd lost all the moisture, so I couldn't even raise my hand, couldn't raise my arm. If I had to be turned, somebody would have to turn me. And looking at my mum standing by my bedside, who is one of the most precious human beings I've ever known in my life with her patience, rather than pour shame and guilt into my heart, all she did was stand by my side and love me to try to bring me through that dark valley. A man walked into my hospital room and uh, brought a Bible and he wanted me to read it, but I couldn't hold it. So he opened it to John chapter 14 mm -hmm. and it asked my mother to read it to me. She didn't want him in the room because I was in really pretty critical condition, not sure that I was gonna make it. So she took it, her English, my mother's English was not that sharp. And so here she was reading in the King James language, a uh, Bible that probably she had chapters she'd never read in her life reading it to her son, and Jesus is talking to Thomas. Thomas is the one who actually went to India as the apostle. And the oldest church in India is the Martoma Church, named after Thomas, and his target audience were the Nambudris, the highest caste of the Hindu priesthood. My ancestors were Nambudris. So I'm reading, uh, he's, my mother's reading to me till Jesus says to Thomas, because I live, you also shall live. That's all I wanted to hear. I didn't understand much of the context, but I did know what he was talking about it was not just biological life. I said, Jesus, if you are who you claim to be, take me out of this hospital bed and I will leave no stone unturned in my pursuit of truth. Just rescue my life here. Five days later, I walked out. And Louis, you know, oftentimes I look back. So that was 17, I'm 70 now. So I got 53 years walking with Christ and he's only become nearer and dearer and more uh, uh, deep in my knowledge of who he is and why he paused by my bedside with such grace and pursued me till he fulfilled his plan in my life by calling me to himself and calling me to be an apologist. That was it, yeah. So today's Father's Day, and uh, obviously the focus today is on men, primarily. Um, all the men in the house, really, all the people in the house. But what, what would you say, you've traveled the world, you've been in every culture, you've lived in different cultures. Are there common quests in the hearts of all the men in this room today? And what are some of the common quests of men? And if maybe I could add a second question, how do those collide in the person of Christ? You know, it's very uh, damaging in our time that there are some serious questions even on fatherhood. People really struggle with this question. I was speaking in Sydney, Australia to the members of parliament and civic leaders. This is a few months ago. 
and two to my right was the chief of police in Sydney. He's a Christian man. And while just before I stood up to speak, I asked him how things were there. And uh, Australia has Father's Day on a different time. I think they have it uh, later towards the fall rather than here, middle of the year that we do. And he said this to me, he said, Ravi, he said, not far from where we are sitting right now in this nice club atmosphere, he says, a part of Sydney where 90% of the young men in that neighborhood do not know who their father is. Mm. And he said, it's the most lonely and feared day of the year for them. He said, I have 18,000 law enforcement people working under me. And that area where they work is the most dreaded area for them because 90% of the young fellows out there don't know who their father is. And I remember when he said that in his uniform and all of his insignias and all of that, I just broke into tears in my eyes thinking, you know, if you don't know much even about your earthly father, how are you even going to find some kind of anal analogy for a heavenly father? And it's a critical need in our times for dads to know how to blend strength with gentlemanliness, with courtesy and kindness, how to treat all of mankind and how to raise a son who knows the strength of manhood, but also the humility of being a human being before the eyes of God. It's one thing we really, really need in our times. And if we have no father in this world and it breeds so much of hate and so on, think of what this world would be like if there were no heavenly father. Thank God we have a heavenly father. And that's why Jesus, even in that torturous moment, called him holy father, holy father, holy that keeps God at the distance, Father that brings him so near, reverence and love in that juxtaposition of relationship. So the idea of fatherhood, critically needed in our times. Let me just point out one thing here, it just comes to my mind. I was recently at the funeral of the CEO of one of the largest financial companies in the world. You may have read about this in the newspapers. He took his own life at the age of 59 because it had not been a good couple of years for that financial institution. I flew all the way to Zurich to attend his funeral and met his son and daughter and the, the kids are just weeping their hearts out, you know. All of a sudden, I was thinking of them today, particularly mm -hmm. with my wife too, we're talking about terrible to suddenly have lost your dad. It's a completely different story and I don't want to segue into that, but you've got to, if you're a father, be that father to your kids. Put your arms around them, tell them you love them, be there for them in their greatest need. And if you are alienated or estranged in any way from your son or daughter, make this the day where you reach out and bridge that gap. And if you're a son or daughter, that does not have your dad, my earnest prayer for you is that God will make himself very close to you and give you the opportunity someday of being a parent to someone who's going through the struggle like you are right now. Father's Day is a very defining day for our culture in the years ahead. So Ravi, I, I, I want you to talk a little bit about your confidence in Christ. And you mentioned two things about an apologist. Apologist makes things clear, but 
and explains things, but then you also add it on, but you don't want to offend the questioner. So you stand in, in every culture. In fact, I wanted you to tell this story before I finish the question. I, when we did a podcast for Passion last year, you'd, you'd just been in India, and you said you met with uh, a private invitation-only meeting of business leaders, government leaders, the culture leaders of the city that you were in. And, and normally, Ravi will speak anywhere, Harvard, Yale, Oxford, doesn't matter, and they just put microphones in the aisles and people just line up and they just ask you whatever they want to ask right. you. And that's bold. That's amazing. And uh, the fact that you can answer all those questions is why you're one of the smartest people alive, if not the smartest person alive. Um, <laughs> I do like your hair color, by the way. <laughs> What's left of it, yeah. I've just, been, I've just been admiring that the whole time you've been talking. It really makes me feel better about my life and uh, my station of life. But you said a man came to the microphone. I'm going to give you the question and you give us the answer, if you remember the answer. But I remember it, so if you forgot. But um, he, he came to the microphone and he said, I've just been married. And my wife and I have been discussing whether or not we need a guru. Now that's a question that kind of caught me off guard because I don't think I'd ever heard the word guru used in a sentence before, in a real sentence before, but in India, obviously, that's a part of culture and a part of life. So he asks you, Mr. Zacharias, do you think that my wife and myself need a guru, meaning a spiritual guide, someone to help us sort out our spiritual journey in life? And do you remember your answer? Yes, I do, um, fortunately. Uh... <laughs> These days, you try to remember not only the answer, but even the question. Uh, it was at the prestigious Taj Mahal Hotel in Mumbai, now called Mumbai, used to be called Bombay. Uh, it's one of those places that years ago was catapulted in the news because a terrorist attack had taken place. It's one of the most beautiful hotels in India, one of the most beautiful hotels in the world. The managing director of the entire Taj group is a Hindu man and is a friend of mine. And so ironically, he was hosting this, but he was a bit nervous as to the, what all I would say. So he should a disclaimer right from the beginning. He said, you know, I'm not sure I believe all of these things. I have my own belief system and so on. He said, but I think we need to hear this friend of mine. And the place was packed with uh, the upper crust of India's uh, business world. And uh, years ago, I could not have answered it the way I did. You've got to be very nervous out there got to navigate because offense comes easily, but India is changing so dramatically. A lot of very sophisticated Hindus coming to Christ. So this man stood up and said, my wife and I have this ongoing argument whether we need a guru. She says, yes. I say, I'm not sure. Uh, what do you say? And I said, I do not get into family squabbles. Uh, but uh, I said, you're drag dragging me into it. I said, but let me tell you something, sir. You're, the way you've worded it, he said, is a guru necessary, the way he ended his question? I said, the way you phrased it makes it easier for me. The answer to your question is only that is necessary, which is your, your meeting your greatest need in life. And your greatest need in life is not for a guru. Your greatest need is for a savior. And even your guru needs a savior. And when I, when I said that to him, quickly said a prayer, Lord, let me get out of here alive, you know, so uh, he just kept standing and looking at me. My colleagues were also turning around, taking a look at him, 
And then the next question actually was another businessman. He says, how do you deal with fear in life? I live with many fears. These are sophisticated, well-to-do people. After the meeting was over, that man who asked the guru question came over. All Indian, all Hindus live with a guru. But certainly a vast majority of them. The gurus either at the temple or the well-to-do have private gurus. Gurudom and guruism is a vital part of the Hindu faith. So he was asking a very serious question. He came over to me and he grabbed my hand and he said, thank you for answering my question. You have given me a lot to think about. And I said, sir, because your need is not just for knowledge. More knowledge without salvation will only get you more wrong-headed than before. You and I are sinners. We need a savior. Once you get the savior into your life, the knowledge and wisdom is built upon that salvation and that redemption. Otherwise, it's built upon a flawed foundation. So we had a good conversation there. Yeah. A lot of people um, would say, so you believe in Jesus as Savior, and you mentioned earlier as Lord. They would say, that's fantastic. I'm happy for you and thrilled that you have found a path that you like and that works for you, but I'm a Hindu or I'm another stream, another faith, another culture, raised a different way, and that doesn't work for me. So as you traverse cultures, faiths, and religions, how do you steer people to the centrality and the uniqueness of Jesus? I think it's, uh, it's a very critical question. Uh, I remember, in fact, being in Moscow last week, I was telling them this story. In the 1980s, during the Cold War, when everything was rather grim out there, I had been invited by a general who was the chairman of the department for the Center for Geopolitical Strategy in Moscow, General Kirshen. And uh, he had met me somewhere, heard one of my talks, and he invited me to speak at the Center for Geopolitical Strategy, eight stories above ground, four stories below ground, and the entire faculty was atheistic, entire faculty. And before that, he'd taken me to the Lenin Military Academy to, defend, to present a defense of the Christian faith. So they're all military officers out there, and we're halfway through my talk, one of the guys is going like this. You know, so I just look in a different direction and, uh, and keep going. And, uh, that same guy who kept going like this stood up and said to me, I don't know what you're talking about. God, God, God. What are you talking about? So you swallow hard, you know, and you say, Lord, I need you right now more than ever. And so I said to him, are you an atheist? He said, yes. I said, what are you denying? If you say there is no God, what are you denying? If you will tell me that, I'll be glad to help you with my expression. You see, people oftentimes trap themselves. And the most important thing I found in these cultures is to have a good understanding of the worldview. This is where we are failing in America. We don't understand so many worldviews and we buy into the distorted and sometimes deceitful lines that even political leadership can make on various worldviews. We must understand various worldviews and must be respectful of an authentic representation of that worldview, not a caricature of it. So whether it's a pantheistic worldview of Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, whatever, or a monotheistic worldview of Islam, or the atheistic or postmodern worldview of naturalism, however we go, 
the best way to do is to ask them good questions. And when you open questions, you are giving them the privilege of speaking to you rather than just you speaking to them. And sooner or later, the entry point is changed where the gospel can be so clearly presented. I am more convinced than ever that outside of Jesus Christ, there are no answers to the four fundamental questions of life, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And when you know you have that answer, both intellectually and experientially, don't be afraid to be able to engage the person. Do your homework as best as you can, and if you can't answer the question, you can say, I can tell you where you can find an answer to this. Know your resources, at least. And so when you respectfully present the answer, it's so unique. Let me just give you one illustration of this. You take any other worldview, any other worldview, religious worldview. You take Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, all of these, you know, India has manufactured more religions than any other nation in the world. It's incredible. And in Hindu, the pantheon of Hinduism alone, there are 330 million deities. So religion, you, you breathe religion out there. But then you take the monotheistic worldview of Islam. So you take pantheism, uh, which identifies yourself with the divine through um, meditation or whatever you get identified with this impersonal absolute, or the monotheistic worldview of Islam. All of them have one thing in common. You do not attain nirvana or you do not attain paradise except by your works. If you ask any Muslim, how do you get to paradise? The answer will be very straightforward. Your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds. You ask the pantheist, how are you gonna attain nirvana or moksha, which means release, and they will say karma, you pay your debt. Every birth is a rebirth. Every life you pay for your, it's a paid system. It is an earned system. And when you read the story of the prodigal son, what happens? The son comes to himself and sees how wretched he is. He has not earned anything except disgrace and emptiness and shame. And he decides to make his journey home. And in a shocking end to the story, the father steps out of the house to come and look for his boy and meets him halfway. I can guarantee you the average person listening to Jesus would not have expected that part of the story, that the father would step out mm -hmm. and greet the son. It's the gift of God. It's the grace of God. It's the mercy of God. And once we receive this, we live it out with gratitude. We do believe in works, but not as a means of our salvation, but as a demonstration of the salvation that God has already accomplished in us. So there's a difference. Yeah. So you, you mentioned how Christ is the only answer to these four major questions. Touch briefly on how he answers those four questions. See, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. I have a series of talks that I call one, two, three, four, five. Uh, one is most important thing is the truth. Two, what is truth? You test it in correspondence and coherence. Three, the uh, the philosophical test for truth, logical consistency, empirical adequacy, experiential relevance. So number one is the truth. Number two, correspondence and coherence. Number three, logical consistency, empirical adequacy, experiential relevance. Number four, the questions. 
origin, meaning, morality, destiny. And number five, the five disciplines which you have to inculcate or bring in if you're truly going to answer from God, knowledge, reality, ethics, anthropology, those five disciplines that you have to really work through in your mind. But when we are looking at that, just the four questions, think of this now. What if we are here by accident? That we are the random collocation of atoms Time plus matter plus chance. I remember in my days at Cambridge listening to Stephen Hawking give a lecture at the Lady Mitchell Hall in 1990. For six months I was there doing some studies under one of the most prominent atheistic philosophers of that time. And I was listening to Stephen Hawking. And of course he was struggling in his pursuit himself and has concluded really, if not an atheistic and agnostic worldview, that we are predetermined, we are wired. We are just here with no prevision, accidentally here, sort of a blip on the radar screen of time. Think about that. You are here by total accident. You know what? Numerous questions emerge. Just think of one question. So the man walks into a bar in Orlando and murders 49 others. A few days before that, that young singer who was murdered at point-blank range. What if there is no God? What if there is no justice? Where does all this go? When a man can slaughter a mass of people and, and then ultimately put a gun to his head or her head or whatever, where is justice? It actually raises immense questions of moral absolutes and ultimately the question of justice. Justice is a critical part of any culture. And so if there is no God, justice is purely what a state decides. Morality is what you purely decide. Meaning, how do you find meaning? <coughs> Why honor your vows in marriage if stolen waters are sweeter? They're not sweeter. God has given us laws and boundaries that are there for our benefit. You violate those laws, you will not do it with impunity. You end up breaking yourself upon the laws that God has already instituted. Meaning, the sacredness of worship, you're all here today to sing, to pray, to give. It's part of who you are and what's happened in your life. Meaning has to bring together truth and enchantment. <clears throat> it's not just one of those two. It's a, that's a different subject on its own. So origin, meaning, morality. How do we separate right from wrong? You know, we talk about America being a nation of laws. That sounds very good. So the laws are at the root. The trunk is the political structure. The branches are the, extend, are the extremities, the culture itself. <clears throat> so I say to you, what holds the roots? Laws don't hold themselves. They have to be held by a moral soil. Who provides that moral soil? It cannot be a self-reflecting ethic. It has to be overarching and objectively true. So origin, meaning, morality, <coughs> and then destiny. What happens to a human being when he or she dies? See, time is the canvas on which you may do your self-portrait. Eternity is the keyhole through which you see the whole gallery. Through that keyhole of eternity, you see the whole gallery, see all of history, and see all of life. So I say to you, who answers those four questions? Listen to me carefully now. 
where the individual questions are correspondingly true and the totality of the answers are coherent. That meets the correspondence and coherence. Suppose an atheist says, ah, I can demonstrate for you that we are here by accident. Okay, I'll take that from you then, and you say that's correspondingly true. What do you do with meaning and justice and destiny and all of that? Then it becomes incoherent mm -hmm. at that point. So correspondence and coherence right. are there. You know Jesus Christ, you have the answer that provides correspondence to reality and coherence to your life. Live it out. Live out that coherent lifestyle. And those four questions are so beautifully answered by Jesus Christ. The saddest text in the scriptures, I think, are when Pilate says to him, what is truth? And walked away without waiting for the answer. It's important to know the truth. Because if you abide in his word, you are my disciples, then you shall know the truth. And the truth will set you free. True freedom for meaning and purpose comes from the truth of Jesus Christ. No other worldview answers the questions the way he does. So I want to just think about where we're heading, particularly as a, as a nation, the nation that we live in. Um, the buzzword of our time is tolerance. But it seems like um, people are tolerant of just about everything but Jesus. And so how, how does this play out in the future, and how would you lead Jesus' followers in these days? You know, I, I think, uh, Louis, and first of all, let me just pause for a moment to say how much I appreciate what you do and uh, what you have accomplished as a leader with your wife and your team around you, how you've touched this generation in a way that very few have. And I say that not just because I'm your guest. I say that because I want to commend you and ask you to keep going. You know, may the Lord give you your best years ahead. You're reaching this culture and this generation without compromising truth, but at the same time with compassion extending the message. I think truth and relevance are the twin feet and you're finding the best ways to be relevant without compromising the truth. So all over the globe when I go, I hear your name being mentioned amongst two or three others. And uh, I just am grateful to God for what you're doing. You're a good example of the very answer you're asking me to articulate here in how you've lived it out. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you, Thank you. And we need, we need a lot more of this, believe me. There's not enough around. Uh, tolerance. My colleague Michael Ramsden has a good way of say, stating it. You know, he says, how would somebody feel if you say to them, I just want you to know I tolerate you? <laughs> you know, it's just another one of those words manufactured to hide a lot of stuff that nobody wants to admit. You know, truth is exclusive, whether we like it or not. The law of non-contradiction says two mutually exclusive affirmations cannot both be true without qualifying each other. We use terms like tolerance, like progressivism. Ma, another marvelous word, progressivism. <laughs> to what? Progressive is not a static term. It's a term now just represents motion. 
it has to represent direction. You know, you've just, I mean, you could be hey, like the Irishman when somebody was asking him for directions, he said, if, if that's where you want to go, this is not where I would begin. You can't start from the wrong direction. So tolerance has come to mean affirming a radical, relativistic position in such a way that you actually don't believe there are absolutes anymore. That's really what it has come to mean. And, but I have to say this, Christians have to be very careful. I have to be very careful. One wrong word and you can slam a door shut. I think tolerance in my way of thinking is, what did the Lord do at the created order? He gave them just one law. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because today you're going to do it, you're going to die. What did Satan say? No, 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 no. That's not what the truth is. The truth is in the day you do it, you'll become as God. Jesus, God spoke the absolute truth. Satan manipulated a text out of context. And what did he mean Ten, Play God. You see, what, what Satan was really saying is, play God. What God was really saying is, don't play God. Because the day you play God, you will need thousands of other laws to protect yourselves from each other. Now there's only one. Let me be the definer of good and evil. Don't become the definer of good and evil. Till today, think of the definitions we don't have. We don't have definitions for anything. Mm -hmm. We cannot define what it means to be human. We have lost definitions of uh, marriage. We've lost definitions in every way possible. And so when you get onto a plane, they tell you there's a smoke detector there. What do they say? Don't touch, tamper, disable, or destroy. Four words. For one thing. <laughs> when they could just say, don't mess with it. You see? <laughs> the reason they say don't touch, tamper, disable, or destroy is because you can go to a court of law and say, you know, I didn't touch it. Yeah, I disabled it, but I didn't really touch it. Every word dies the death of a thousand qualifications. And in this culture, we have to walk very, very sensitively. One of the things I've noticed as we speak at university campuses, when I was in the University of Kentucky a few weeks ago, 7,000 out on a midweek open forum. Mm -hmm. 7,000. You go to Harvard, Princeton, Yale. I'll be in Yale coming up in a few weeks. So when you go to Princeton, Harvard, Yale, Johns Hopkins, Dartmouth, uh, all of them, uh, you know, my colleague Nabil Qureshi is in the audience, either this one or the next meeting. And we were together at uh, one of the major universities. I think Johns Hopkins, we were together. This was packed. Mm. Overflow, they're opening three, four different halls. One professor, one board of trustee man at Yale walked into the auditorium on a Thursday night and they had to open up different rooms and he said, what on earth? He looked at the man next to him and said, what are these people doing coming to listen to the answer about why Jesus is the only way? On a, he said, we have to, uh, prime ministers and presidents come here. We don't fill it out in the afternoon, in the evening like this. What's going on? He asked the wrong man the question because the man looked at him and said, is it possible you have left their souls empty? And that answered the question. So you can be in, you can be in a counterculture and navigate very carefully on how you answer their questions. And to me, tolerance means not being disrespectful of the counter-questioner. 
you can be very respectful of their position. The Lord has given us options. He's also cautioned us about the consequences. We are free to choose. We are not free to change the consequences. And so the most important thing is to love your fellow human being regardless. Love even those whom you disagree with and you will win them with love, not with castigation and judgment. We will always live with our differences, but if you love your fellow human being and gently answer question without making them feel less of a human being than you or I are, uh, then we win them over with love and respect. Against love there is no law. And so truth undergirded by love wins the questioner over. Time is running out, so I don't, I don't want to belabor this, but I say you speak in counter perspectives, yeah. I have uh, another question. <laughs> so you, you mentioned earlier that you were in that place in um, Moscow, uh, not recently, but some time back, and it was a whole uh, faculty of atheists. But um, I think we've been talking about um, this idea of open house, of having generous lives, one part of that being willing to communicate our grace story to the people around us. And I think we all get stymied when someone says, you know, not in a forum, not at Yale, not at Harvard, but maybe just in a conversation on a bus or a plane or a friend, you know, that's working out at a club and they're trying to get around faith and the person just says, well, I don't believe in God. Uh, how, what are some practical things that non-Ravi Zacharias people can do <laughs> when a friend or neighbor or family member says, that's great, but I don't believe in God, and a lot of times we're like, uh, okay, I'm out. You know, I don't know what to do with that. What are some practical ways that you try to build a bridge in that moment? Let me give you a quick illustration. Some years ago, Richard Dawkins was on BBC, he was talking to Giles Fraser, one of the former deans of St. Paul's Cathedral. Giles Fraser himself, a bit of a liberal, but he was engaging the atheist Richard Dawkins, asking why he was so mad at Christians and all of that. And Dawkins made the comment, this is a true story I'm telling you by the way. Dawkins said, Christians basically quite ignorant. Most of them cannot even name the four gospels, you know, but they talk so much about God. So Giles Fraser looked at Dawkins and he said, Richard, your Bible is Darwin's origin of species, isn't it? And Dawkins said, yes. He said, Richard, can you give me the full title of the book? And he said, yeah, I know, it's a long title. He said, go ahead, Richard, go ahead. I know it's a long title. That's why I'm asking you if you know the title of the book. And this is exactly what happened. Dawkins says, uh, the, uh, the origin of the species, um, oh, my God, I cannot remember the, first of the rest of it, he said. <laughs> Even an atheist had to call upon God to remind him of the title of a book that he could not remember the title for. That tells you the sovereignty of God. And the, and the next day in the newspapers, the article was headlined by the words, it's been a bad week for atheists. Uh, you allow them to talk long enough they end up convicting themselves. You know, a student at the University of Iowa said to me, whoever told you life had to be coherent? And I said, I let her talk long enough. She was really hostile, standing in the back with a mouth cupped like that in front of the microphone. I said, ma'am, I'll be happy to answer. Your question is, whoever told me that life had to be coherent? She said, yes. 
I said, do you want my answer to be coherent or can I be incoherent in answering you? And the audience burst out laughing. I said, no, 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 don't laugh. I want to hear from her. Is it okay for you if I give you an incoherent answer? She was silent. Life breaks down at certain points, either at the death of a loved one or at the search for meaning or just to find coherence from your day-to-day -day living. Befriend those who are strongest in their resistance because when life starts to break down, you will be the one that they will actually turn to for an answer. You don't have to bring, you know, uh, Charles Wesley, uh, I think was reached for Christ by one of the maids in the family or something like that. Suddenly when Hetty, the last one to come in, 19 kids she raised. Several of them passed away as, uh, as children. But you can talk to people today who were led to Christ by their grandson, their granddaughter, by a younger brother, by a street uh, uh, cleaner of sorts. You read testimonies and you find the right word at the right time reaches people when things are breaking down. Don't feel you have to have a high sophisticated education. Live the life. And when their life breaks down, you'll be the one that they will turn to. And they will ask the right question with the right point of entry into their own heart. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I think Ravi, amazing. Thank you. <laughs> amazing. Thank you.